I'm Paul Stanley from Help Around, and I wanted to welcome everyone here to the inaugural event of the Specialty Patient Thought Leadership Series. Uh, I also uh, enjoy to introduce Christine Limke. She is our moderator for the day, and she is a senior principal consultant with the Bluefin Group. With her extensive industry experience across the pharmaceutical ecosystem and her Six Sigma black belt, she has all the tools necessary to keep our panel of experts in line today. And with that said, I'll hand it over to Christine. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, looking forward to this afternoon's conversation. It's also my pleasure to introduce some of the best and brightest minds in the specialty pharmacy industry. So I'd like to introduce you to Amaya Fudke. He's from us from the Chiefi Group, which is a leading manufacturer of specialty pharmaceuticals. He is a scientist turned strategist turned deal maker with experience from startups to mid-tech and pharma. In his current role, he drives the digital strategy for Chiefi, creating and scaling new business models with innovative partners in the marketplace. I'd also second panelist today is Isha Knobel. He is the founder and CEO of Help Around a mobile patient concierge platform for specialty pharmacy. Prior to Help Around, he led the MID, the M Health platform at Agamatrix, served at Microsoft Startup Labs in Boston, and shipped numerous award-winning warfare systems in the Israeli Army Cyber Unit. Also joining us today is Sheila Arquette. She's the executive director of the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy. She is a specialist in nonprofit organization management, skilled in healthcare management, health policy, and so much more. Sheila is a strong business development professional, and we're honored to have you with us today. Last on the panel, Brian Haney brings a unique combination of building and managing successful patient services and reimbursement hub experiences. He has been both on the service provider side at Lash and other service providers, as well as the management manufacturer side at BTG, and currently leads the client solutions at Connective Rx. He not only has pulled off nine product launches in nine years, he is an expert when it comes to making patient services and reimbursement hub services work for the patients, as well as for the company. So today, thank you and welcome our panelists. We look forward to a very tight schedule, gaining insights and answers from each of these industry leaders. And so we'll be moving quickly today. Each panelist will have an opportunity to answer the question for two minutes, and then we'll have and hit a lightning round of questions at the end. I feel like a game show host today, so bear with me and we're gonna have fun. If you have any questions as uh, those participating in the audience today, we ask that you submit them through the Q&A link found down below on the screen. And if we have time at the end, we'll give panelists an opportunity to answer them. However, if we run out of time in our, our fun-filled uh, questions and answers today, please know that all of your questions will be answered offline. And we'll put those questions together as a blog post, et cetera. So feel free to introduce yourselves in the chat so we know who you are. And we'll be launching poll questions throughout the uh, webinar today. They'll come to your screen, just weigh in on those, and then we'll have a chance to showcase those at the end of the webinar as well. So thank you all for joining. We're going to get started with our first question, and this one is for Amia first, and then Sheila and Brian. What has the pandemic forced you to improve or adapt regarding patients? Amia, would you go first? 
Yeah, so and I, thanks for having me here. I think, so first off, um, you know, I guess I'm obligated to say anything I'm saying is my own opinion, not that of Chiesi's. This also means I can be a lot more blunt and transparent. So, um, you know, I think to, and so I can speak about patient trends in general um, and, you know, what we're seeing in the space. Um, especially in places outside the US like Europe, it's forcing markets that were actually quite resistant towards digital health to actually sit up and take notice, right? So especially places like Italy and Spain, which are not known for being sort of the most forward thinking um, in terms of adopting digital health. I mean, I remember hearing someone quote, basically saying that the digital health industry in Europe is now making 10 years of progress in the last like couple of months. Um, so it's, it's, it's really been interesting, right? It's really forcing these markets to take it seriously. Um, you know, candidly, I'm not entirely sure how much sticking power um, it'll have. I, I hope it does. But I think that is something that we should also just think about, which is, um, you know, we found this, you know, it's forced us into this really interesting way of working. Um, we don't necessarily want to go into the status quo if and when the situation resolves. But we are, at least for now, we are seeing definitely significant changes, especially when it comes to, to access to care. Thank you. Sheila, would you like to add to that, please? Sure, Christine. So from our specialty pharmacy member perspective, specialty pharmacies were already very well positioned to deal with the challenges of this pandemic with respect to dispensing and shipping medications and also patient education and disease management. So our focus um, initially shifted you know, right away to performing an evaluation of who needs to physically be in this pharmacy, right? To ensure that the medications get to the patients and who do we have to move to work from home? And what does that look like? And, and how do we get folks set up? Because traditionally, you know, our staff all comes into the pharmacy. So how do we get folks set up so that they can perform their job duties at home while keeping those key pharmacy personnel safe and ensuring their safety and looking at staggering shifts and how do we sanitize and make sure that things are clean? Also due to all of the information around COVID, and as, as I'm sure you'll all agree, it was oftentimes changing by the hour. Our specialty pharmacists had to try to keep abreast with all of what was happening around COVID. And then also being a resource, a continued resource around the drug and the disease management. So I think it was setting up different you know, email addresses and trying to triage the information and also just trying to process all of that information so that they could be the best resource as patients continue to struggle with these specialty conditions right in the midst of a pandemic. Thank you, Sheila. Brian from the patient services, support services arena, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so in many ways, you know, we see the impact very directly, right? So as a service provider helping patients access and afford medications, you know, medication affordability has always been a priority for patients, but, but now when we speak to patients, we're hearing more and more stories about a patient losing the job, right? Not having insurance, worried about how they're going to stay on their medication. And certainly, you know, we have to make sure that we're continuing to demonstrate tremendous amounts of empathy and act as an advocate for the patient. But we're also realizing that in this telehealth world, in this remote world, in this, you know, shelter place world, we have to rethink and really innovate how we're providing support. So we know that our engagements with patients has to be more digital. We gotta meet the patient kind of where they are with that phone that's in their hand. Uh, and we've had some mobile capabilities for a while, things like text reminders and patient websites, but really what this has done is forced us to look at the entire patient experience and say, where can we open this up digitally? Where can we make it a more self-service options to allow patients 
really take more control of the process and really figure out two-way interactions that are much more engaging, much more uh, robust than what we're having today. And so combining that digital uh, experience with human expertise is really where our focus has really sharpened, I'd say, in the last three months and where we're starting to make, uh, make investments in those areas. But, you know, I think the, the first thing I would say is it's, the, it's the, just the devastation uh, you know, that the pandemic has caused from an uh, economic perspective and a, and a jobs loss perspective that has really um, come to the fore for us. You all were talking about the telehealth ad adoption. I'd like to switch a question to Sheila first. Is how has the surge in the telehealth adoption impacted your patients and the patient's uh, support through the organization? Sure, so I think for our patients, as I mentioned, they were um, very accustomed to dealing with our specialty pharmacies and pharmacists right through either digital uh, means or technology. But as we know that most of these medications require prior authorization. So I think as our physicians and our, and our provider practices moved to working from home, it was, you know, there were issues and challenges around being able to get in touch with the prescriber to get the information necessary to satisfy a, either a new authorization or to continue an existing authorization. So we, our specialty pharmacists, you know, quickly shifted in trying to work, excuse me, with the payers in looking at what authorizations could be continued, right, based on the patient's clinical course and how long they've been on the therapy and what information absolutely was necessary to obtain to move forward. And then working with, you know, the limited capacity of some of these office staffs to get those patients onto therapy as quick as possible. And then, Brian, as you were talking earlier about the impact for patients here as well, what are some details that you see the surge of, of the, is there any segmentation among the patients in terms of telehealth adoption? How has it impacted the patients that ConnectiveRx serves? Yeah, so it's impacted really uh, all the patients. And what I'd say is, you know, for those medications that are, you know, of a chronic nature, um, that model has continued. What we've seen, though, is patients who may be on a, on a non-chronic or, or, or um, you know, uh, optional sort of medication, we've seen quite a bit of drop-off in terms of their engagement uh, through really any channels. And then one of the biggest challenges that we see is, you know, one of the primary ways that physicians and patients learn about the kinds of services that we provide has historically been with, with sales rep interaction. So the farmer rep comes into the, into the clinic, into the office, you know, provides information about the kinds of support services they're offering. And with that model uh, evaporating or going away, uh, how do clients really figure out what support programs are available to them? And so what we've seen is a real request to surge from the pharma companies to figure out a way to push the right information to the patient at the right time. So that has led to a growth in the use of the EHR uh, and EHR patients. Mm -hmm along with pharmacy systems really to provide that right information so that when a doctor makes a prescribing decision, they're not having to remember what information they may have been told by a rep about a support program. That information appears to them in real time and can be presented to the patient. So again, because of the affordability issues, which are becoming uh, more and more of an issue through the pandemic, uh, this becomes a more critical aspect to make sure that patients who want to access therapies can. Certainly makes sense. And looking now to the the manufacturer side of it for 
from Amea, from, from yeah. JC, what, what are you seeing from that perspective? Well, you know, I think there is a couple of really foundational issues that this uh, pandemic has actually uh, helped help the industry overcome. You know, one of the biggest challenges with telehealth adoption, um, more so than the patient acceptance, was really the provider acceptance, providers actually accepting this, and, and likewise, even providers being able to bill for things like televisits. I mean, until only a few years ago, it was actually considered, I believe it was actually um, considered Medicare fraud if you billed for a visit that where you didn't physically see the patient, right? So, um, you know, I, that, that's the kind of stone age we were in from a systems perspective. And so it was less of an issue of, um, it was, you know, providers and systems, uh, providers actually taking this seriously was actually one of the biggest issues. And so now I think with patients actually, um, you know, with because patients are also seeing that, right? Like they're able to get access to a lot more services through telehealth than they were otherwise able to with providers and systems without having to like choose a new provider or thing. So I think it's really, if I had to put it in one sentence, it's really being able to get as care that is as close to what they were getting before as, as the current environment allows while minimizing disruption to sort of their typical way of getting this care. And that's, I mean, especially if you consider that a vast majority of these patients um, have conditions that require them to see a large team of physicians that require them to have these care teams that they really have to have to develop these, you know, it, it, this is not something you can spin up in a day. Um, I think being able to work within as much of that workflow as possible is, is really one of the things that's driven a lot of that change. Have any of you, oh, oh Isha, please. Um, so I think, I think a big, a big uh, challenge and opportunity uh, that uh, is taking place right now is that a lot of patients actually, you know, they don't, not just the salespeople don't make it to the doctor. Also the patients don't make it to the doctor. Yep. A lot of patients are, you know, putting off their, their visit. They don't want to get exposed. We stay at home. Uh, telemedicine, you know, not everybody, uh, you know, people, so, sometimes it works and it's awesome. And you can see the graph in some of the telemedicine companies. But for some specialty uh, patients, it doesn't quite work. So, so this really brings us to the to to quest to ask ourselves: Okay, as an industry that is looking to support patients in this period, what do we do to support patients now that they are farther removed from the doctor? So now is the time when patients need to rely on more connectivity with all the, the, the stakeholders uh, that, that are already there. I mean, they're already here, especially pharmacy, the hub, uh, um, but now is the time to really um, step in and bring value to patients because they need that guidance in the absence of the doctor visit. Do any of you through your patients have found that there's a preference for telehealth? Is it providing where in the past, they actually are, are getting more out of this connectivity, that there's a preference that even post-pandemic, if things change back to uh, a new normal, if you will, that you'll see still an uptake and in fact, an enhancement of the telehealth options. Yeah, I can, I can sort of speak to that. I've heard anecdotally through our patients, but I also think about my own personal experience. So I've had, I think three telehealth visits um, since the pandemic, one for myself and one for each of my, my children. And in talking with the doctors, you know, they had a, a preconceived notion about what they could do via telehealth when they started. And they've seen that they can really expand it to, to, to look at a whole lot of different things than they could before. And so 
they're getting, they're thinking about their practices and their workflow and their interaction with patients in whole different ways that certainly there's always going to be a need, I think, for some level of you know, in-office visits for a variety of reasons, but I think it's only going to expand um, what's possible. I thought about a, you know, I had, I had a sprained ankle for a son and taking the, the laptop and sort of zooming it over to where the ankle is and, <laughs> and sort of come in and had that diagnosis was, was fine. We weren't certainly sure if that was the right way. We went in and the diagnosis when we went in was exactly the same we got via telehealth. So I think we, we as patients will get more comfortable, more confident with the, the feedback, the diagnosis through that channel. And, and I think that will lend itself to you know, conveniences and lend itself to my interacting with a specialist you know, thousands of miles away without me having to make that trip and, and endure those expenses. So I think there's all kinds of things to think about uh, from this you know, early model that uh, really I think is very positive. Can we talk about the patients? Any thoughts of anyone from interactions with the healthcare professional on the other side of delivering quality patient care in that model? I think of telehealth. Yeah, so I mean, I think just to, I would say just to follow up on one of the things that Brian mentioned, I do think somewhat of an unmet need, but I think one that we'll start to see being filled is um, a lot of these ancillary things that you can tag on to telehealth to really replicate as much of that. So I'll give you, I'll give you a very specific example, right? So respiratory care, people have traditionally been pretty resistant to telehealth because doctors were saying, well, I can't listen. I, I can't ask the patient to, you know, breathe into the micro like how am I going to listen to that right well it turns out you have a number of companies that have actually developed um, basically software-based diagnosis where you could literally cough into a smartphone um, it's it's essentially a classifier that's trained to tell you what you have with it's actually relatively accurate right so think through a future state where you're seeing a physician um, let's say for respiratory, let's say for respiratory issue, um, and the physician, the patient says, look, I don't feel so good. Physician says, all right, well, why don't you cough into this, you know, why don't you cough into this app? The physician sees a diagnosis on, on his or her end and says, oh, yeah, looks like your, uh, looks like your condition is getting worse. We may want to up the amount of, of controller medication or what have you, right? And so, um, you know, or, you know, having some of these devices that you may be able to pick up at like a CVS that can talk directly to the telehealth system. And so, Having a lot of those, you know, not all those diagnostics can live on a smartphone, but the point is, I think, as we integrate a lot of these into the telehealth experience, you know, for example, with the, with the example that Brian, Brian gave, um, you know, you might actually, you know, training, you know, image recognition is something that we're actually getting quite good at. And so being able to leverage some of these, some of these technologies so that the physician can really remotely diagnose um, is, mm -hmm. I think it's something that the technologies are there. I think we're going to start to see adoption of those because, you know, spurred on by, say, COVID, but I think it, it will have a little bit more sticking power, especially when it comes to getting to, you know, specialty patients that are in these sort of far-flung rural communities that may not have a ton of health infrastructure there, right? I'm thinking, like, someone in the middle of Alaska, right? Like, how can, you, how can that person be seen by, so, for example, a cystic fibrosis patient, in some remote community in Alaska, how, how did they get access to cystic fibrosis expert at, at like Penn or like a large academic medical center? Well, something that required that person to jump on a plane is now, you know, with telehealth and these, I guess, ancillary diagnostics that may actually become something in the, in the, in the very near future. Great, thank you. I appreciate that. Going to add on one minute point, I think the other thing that is going to is already happening and i think it's an amazing opportunity for drug manufacturers is the fact that you know it's the 
is the same patient. Think of all these interactions, the interaction with the HCP, interaction with the SP, interaction with the hub, all these interactions that the patient has, some of them are clinical interactions, right? So telehealth, et cetera. Some of them are administrative uh, interactions. Mm -hmm. So with the hub, about coverage, et cetera. And some of them are, uh, and some of them are, are uh, with the SP, right? But it's the same patient. So gradually, we're going to start seeing the consolidation into, into one place, one platform, just like we all used to consuming everything on mobile. Everything is coming to mobile. So the HCP interaction is on mobile. The SP interaction is on mobile. The, the patient support program, the, the, the free, uh, the, the patient assistant program, everything is coming to mobile. And that's a good thing. Even you're going to start seeing digital therapeutics. That also goes on mobile you will be able to just interact with everyone in the same place. And that's really the future, uh, I think, of, of patient support, especially for specialty patients who are interacting with so many places. So let me follow up with a quick, oh, I'm sorry, Sheila, please. I just wanted to say that I think this is gonna be another awesome tool, right, in the armamentarium for, for physicians and, and for providers. Um, most of the specialty patients are immunocompromised. So, for example, we have a, you know, we have a chemo patient who's just coming in for a follow-up and, and, you know, their, their ANC is pretty low, right? And we're afraid about exposing them to other people. Well, geez, now we have this telehealth visit that we can do instead and keep the patient safe, right? And so I think it, it'll be a much more tailored approach, taking into account that a lot of these patients really shouldn't be out during a pandemic or not, right? We still have cough and cold and flu to worry about. So I, I think this is going to be great. I think it's really going to, to expand our capabilities. That leads to a question. I wanna go back to Isha. What don't we know about the patient currently that would help enhance the patient experience the most? What have we learned and what don't we know? Sorry, I was mute. Um, so there's, there's what don't we know, I think, at, at the individual patient level. And I think the big question is, first of all, who's we? Right? Because we could be the doctor, we could be, you know, the manufacturer, the drug manufacturer, uh, we, could be, we could be the caregiver. So let's assume for a second that, you know, there are a lot of stakeholders that have slivers of information about where the patient is in the journey. And in specialty, as we know, the specialty patient journey is pretty complex and there's a lot of handoffs. So there's the onboarding, then there's the firewash and benefit verification, and then other handoffs to the hub, and another from the hub, handoff to the SP, and then from the SP, maybe they don't hold that drug, so they hand it off to another SP. And then you got to send information back to, to, you know, this whole, our industry is inundated with data feeds, data feeds, data mm -hmm. feeds, data feeds. And, and which, by the way, from the world of, you know, outside of healthcare, it's, it's unconceivable that we're still sending files to each other. So the fact that these data feeds are our attempt to exchange data, but guess what? Not everybody has one picture of the patient. And that's a problem. Just an example, everybody, all the ecosystem wants to know if the patient has a prior auth or doesn't have a prior auth. The whole industry wants to know whether the patient has connected with an SP or not connected with an SP. The whole ecosystem wants to know whether the patient is taking their took the first medication. Have they used all their benefits? Everybody wants to know that. 
And by the way, the patient, this is the patient's information, right? It's private information that the patient needs to have the power to, uh, to share with the different stakeholders. So that's, that's the, so where the patient is in the patient journey is a huge part that we don't know today. And the most important thing that we need to keep in mind is we don't know what they don't know. What do I mean by that? We, the industry, we, the people who are supposed to service patients, the patient doesn't know where they are. They don't know if the prior off is approved. They don't know what they're waiting for. They don't know if an SP is going to reach out to them. They don't know who's calling them on the phone. So closing that knowing gap is both ways mm -hmm. and is a huge opportunity to provide value to patients and patients will happily share that information back if they're like, oh, I see what the prior off status is. I see where I am in the drug delivery. And a shipment has been sent. Hello, Amazon is doing that for 10 years now. Right, so that knowledge becomes powerful there. So one of the stakeholders then would be a manufacturer. So Amaya, what is the perspective of what, what we don't know, you from that stakeholder about the patient? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I'm gonna throw pretty much all pharma companies under the bus right now. Um, pharma companies fail to acknowledge the fact that patients have issues related to their condition that have nothing to do with taking medication. So pretty much everything that pharma companies have historically done, I call it the McDonald's toy and a happy meal model, right? It's really to, to, to sell, more, sell more burgers. Um, and I think we could do a lot better if we acknowledge the fact that patients have issues very related to their condition, but which have nothing to do with the underlying medication, right? And so at this point, you're really providing, you know, people love to throw the buzzword patient-centric solution around. I would challenge every pharma company to look at what they're doing and are they really patient-centric or are they pill-centric, right? Um, like a patient isn't something that just takes a pill and then writes a script. Like there's all these other things that go with and we're starting to see a move towards some of that, but I would say that's one area where pharma, and this isn't just specialty, this is in general, pharma just really dropped the ball in terms of going past this, you know, beating the medication adherence drum. And I think we could do a lot better, to be completely candid. Sheila, some comments from you on this last question. Sure, Christine. And to follow up on what Amaya just said, I, I think that we need to focus more on what are the patient individual goals of therapy, yep. right? As he said, especially pharmacy, um, you know, focuses on this high touch patient centric specialized plan of care and in, in services that we provide. And I think we really need to include what does the patient expect, right? An oncology patient's journey is going to be entirely different, right? From somebody who has cystic fibrosis or RA or Crohn's disease transplant. So I think that, and I think we have to periodically reevaluate, right? Especially as things change and, and tailor what we're doing for these patients based on what, what is, um, you know, what, are the, what is the patient expecting and what is realistic? Right, and then making sure that we share this information back to the caregivers, to, to the treating physicians, to the health, excuse me, to the health plan, just to make sure that we are all on the same page, right? And we, we maximize that patient journey and, and we keep it clinically relevant and, and as cost effective as possible. Yep. It's interesting that with that, if, of having, as you talk about that, what are the patient individual goals and this patient centric model. There's the tension out in the marketplace of how do you balance what we know about the patient, the patient information safety 
but still being agile in order to help meet that patient where they want to be met, if you will, to have that patient-centric model. So, Brian, some thoughts from you as to how, what, what do we do to balance? How can we be more agile as stakeholders in the industry without um, offsetting or compromising, in fact, not offsetting, excuse me, compromising patient information safety? Yeah, and, and I think how I would answer this is going to is going to uh, balance off of what everyone else has just said on the previous about what we don't know about the patient. So, so certainly I can't speak from an R and D perspective and making sure medication is safe and is effective is paramount. But um, that's only as I think everyone just mentioned earlier. That's really only part of the patient journey with that medication. And where I see agility coming from is a better and a more comprehensive understanding of what a patient must overcome to start and stay on those, on those therapies to begin with. So for example, you know, I think as part of a clinical trial process, I would you know, recommend that pharma, and some do this well, but I don't think it's, 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 it's universal by any means, is that they invest more on patient engagement up front, learning about those non-clinical, financial, emotional support aspects right. from both the patient, the caregivers, their communities, now, where are their barriers? Yeah. Where are the solutions that patients want and that patients will use, right? So don't wait until you decide to commercialize a medication before you start to map out what that non-clinical profile and needs of your patient are. So it's not just a day in the life of the patient, but years in the life of the patient. What factors led to this clinical need? What was the decision process and who was involved when they were making that specialty med medication choice? What else is the patient going through socially, economically, emotionally? I think we have to just dig deeper on what keeps right. the patient up at night and then what motivates the patient to make changes with regard to medication right. and not just the medication itself. And I can, that I can patient, actually, Oh, sorry, please go ahead. Maya, please. No, please. No, please. No, I was just going to follow up with that. I think, I think Brian really hit the nail on the head. I think we really have to start as an industry understanding all these other factors that are, that actually do end up becoming very critical components of of the patient's outcome, right? Even even related to a given medication. You know, I think one of the things that pharma needs to be better at is, um, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because a number of trials actually will collect a lot of this data. Where things fall through is pharma just doesn't know what questions to ask of this data or even what to do with it from a tactical standpoint. So you'll start to see them collecting behavioral data, activity data and things like that. And then when you ask them, well, all right, what are you actually doing? Like what's, what actionable thing is coming out of this? That's really when, you know, the eyes start to glaze over, right? And so, you know, I actually do think what pharma needs to do or pharma, the specialty industry in general, right? Is really think from the standpoint of a consumer business, right? At the end of the day, what is your consumer experience like? What can you do? What can you learn about it? And I think the other part of it is, you know, pharma loves to take a very academic approach to risk, right? So lay out every single risk that could show up and we have to mitigate every single one or we're not doing this, right? And I think you, I think there's an academic and a more pragmatic approach. You know, I think it's really about assessing what the magnitude and probability of each of each risk is. And then, you know, taking, taking that for what it's worth. It also does help that the regulatory authorities are also sort of reflecting this sort of more pragmatic view. Like, you know, to their credit, you know, agencies like the FDA are really trying their level best to understand how these kinds of things can be incorporated into sort of a more regulated environment so we don't end up in a, in a wild, wild west, so to speak. Um, but I, I really think it's A, just being more pragmatic towards risk and then B, actually asking, you know, really diving into 
ways to, to measure the patient experience, right? Like how do you quantify the patient experience and what are those metrics you can use to make sure that you're either meeting that or, or not? And then, and then being held accountable to it, honestly. Isha, what would be your thoughts in terms of how the industry needs to be more agile and not compromise patient information safety? No, definitely I agree with, with, with Brian and, and, and Amiya. I think um, you know, on, the, on the pragmatic side, uh, you know, the term agile comes from software. And it comes from other things before that, but the first one that really embraced agile methodology is software. And the move, the, the predecessor of agile methodology and software was called Waterfall. Yep. And the Waterfall model, the Waterfall model felt very often like a waterfall, especially when you hit the, the bottom of the waterfall. You, you kind of plan and 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 then just all at once, okay? And this is, it reminds you a little bit of a drug launch where you prepare for a drug launch for two years and you prepare and you prepare and you prepare and that's, a, and that's an inherent challenge in the industry. Now, what do we do? Very often, you know, I think the playbook of launching a drug has become I need, you know, a hub in place. I need my contracting in place. I need my patient assistant programs in place. I need this, I need this, I need this. I haven't tested anything yet. I'm going to test everything at once when I launch. That is very risky, very risky approach to do that. So I would challenge anyone either launching a drug or trying a new pro uh, program to be very creative here on experimentation. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean experiment like, you know, uh, the software approach of launch and then, you know, crash and, uh, and compromise patient safety and then we all get fired. Probably not a great idea. But an approach that says, you know what, we're going to launch an unbranded program first. That's very often the case. You launch an unbranded program before the drug is ready and you achieve a few things, you start achieving some feedback. You see how people respond to that specific disease state. You're not talking yet about the drug. You start talking to patients, not just to research groups, not you get more live feedback. You, you really get some water in the system and you can really start getting your, your, your patients. And, and some, some companies what we see out there are, are doing a really, really good job in skin, in skin conditions. Uh, we see a, you know, really nice experimentation with unbranded programs, but then when, but then, okay, so you have, you're learning from that. But the second thing is, when you prepare the launch of the drug, you prepare a product, assume there are gonna be changes. Assume that, how do you prepare for rapid changes after you launch? For example, you pick the hub. And after six months, assume you're gonna to wanna to, uh, replace it. What do you need in place in order to, be, to easily switch? What infrastructure, what connectivity do you need in place so that you don't have to go through the whole thing and reset the whole process? Go through the exercises of adapting before the launch. After the launch, work in tiny, tiny increments because every improvement, you run it through the MLR, you run it through all the legal uh, um, so if someone is like, you know, we have a program and it's going to be for next year, you know, give me a program that I can launch within the next three months so I can get 
So I can see the improvement. This is when the drug is already live. And I, I, again, going back to, I think for that, you need, you can't have a spaghetti of data feeds. You can't have a mishmash of that vendor and that vendor and just launch and hope for the best. You need to prepare the infrastructure and ask the vendor the question, okay, tell me about the switching off process. Okay, here's my backbone of, of connectivity and communication. How do you plug in and out? Um, Christine, I think, Christine I think you may be muted. My apologies. Uh, to dovetail on that of, of compatibility, how will the EHR interoperability impact the specialty patient experience? So as you look at that connectivity and what needs to come together, and we'll start with Sheila. What are your thoughts about what are the needs there and how will that impact the patient experience then? Christine, I think as we've been, and we've been talking about this hour, uh, the specialty pharmacy patient journey is incredibly complex, right? And so we have complexities built in all along the way. It's the drug, it's the disease state, it's the, the coverage policies of the payer, it's affordability issues. There, there's so much complexity. So I think if the EHR can function as a single source of truth for this patient, and, and not only with respect to their specialty pharmacy condition and drug and management, but then also their comorbidities and what other um, providers are they seeing? And how do we get a comprehensive 360 degree view of this patient so that we can best manage them, right? You can't do it in a silo. I think we're, we're figuring that out, right? I think that as we've all had to retreat into our homes during the pandemic, we're adapting, but we're figuring out it's very, very hard when you're siloed from the people that you're used to working with. No different here with respect to managing a patient with something incredibly complex or life-threatening or life-altering. So I think it would be awesome if this could really serve as the single source of truth for this patient and help us better manage them. Part of that patient-centric and thinking of all the psychosocial, not just the pill-centric that Maya was talking about earlier, Maya was so moving, Brian, what are your thoughts there about this interoperability impact for patient care? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have the crystal ball other than I think it'll, have, it'll be a huge domino, right, to improve the overall experience. So if you think about having a common sort of communication or information standard, that's going to open so many doors to allow you to do a couple of things. So you know, we interact with EHRs today but the interaction is at almost the practice level, sort of a bottoms up approach because of the, not only interoperability, but just the extreme levels of customization that occur. And so if you could come up with a, a data and information standard that was universal, I think you could then from a top up perspective, bring new services, new innovations really to everybody in a much quicker, faster, less expensive model. Because right now uh, the experience is really, as, as, as she just mentioned, it's really centered around the processes of the specialty drug and not necessarily the patient. So if we can give the physician more information, more tools at the point of prescribing, not only is that going to create office efficiencies, which physicians will love and, and will enable them or, or give them more capacity for patient care, which is going to be a part and a big part of what the patient experience improvement is going to be like. So again, if the goal is to give patients access to the health information when they need it and in a way they can use it, this will only move us closer to that patient-centric ecosystem. And certainly it's going to unleash, and I don't know what this is going to look like, but it's going to be a, a wave of creativity and a wave of investment, in my opinion, to create digital healthcare experiences that are going to be more like the experiences we take for granted in other areas of our lives. 
Isha, would you like to talk more specifically about the EHR interoperability to dovetail onto this conversation? Yes, I think uh, the new, the, the, the big um, EHR interoperability opportunity in my view, uh, which is starting to happen, uh, is, uh, is automated handoffs. Yep. Uh, I think that's an even bigger opportunity than pure access to data because you know, patients and caregivers, sure, they would love access to their data, uh, but how often is it actionable for them? The, the actionability is when the point of, the, you know, the prescription was written and automatic handoff to the patient support program. Now, now you can really make sure the patient makes it all the way. And I think that's really the opportunity. And we're starting to, um, and, there's quite a lot coming up in, in that area in terms of automatic handoffs from the HCP automatically to the patient support program. But the, the, the details of those handoffs, right? Not everything's created equally will be where the rub is. Maya, well, were you going to comment a little bit yeah, on that? I, was, I, I mean, well, I was actually, well, I was gonna take a little bit of a, um, so I think along with the handoffs, I was just going to add, I think another massive opportunity is that I think personal health records will be actually become something useful beyond just, just, you know, just sort of Apple health kit or whatever that's sitting on your phone. You know, I think there, I think the problem is there's, you know, the personal health record systems that exist right now that really allow patients to bring their data from, you know, to bring them data with themselves. They've tried to build it for everybody. And as a result, they've built it for nobody. Um, and so, you know, I think the problem here is this, and I, I, I especially think about, you know, patients with rare, rare diseases where, you know, patients are typically seeing a specialist who is really like the specialist in their disease. They see a number of specialists who are there to help treat their, the symptoms that are underlying that condition. Um, you know, so if there's neurological symptoms, GI symptoms, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, there will often be sort of, you know, care providers, um, you know, nursing teams, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we've seen literally patients and families that are literally traveling with like binders of paper and reams, like wallets of CDs, um, because yeah. the reality is transporting that data from one point to the other is just, you have to jump through 17 hoops. Um, and so, you know, I think we're going to start to see the end. There's already, there's already several PHR platforms that have really been built with the specialty or the rare disease patient in mind, I think we're going to start to see those be used in a more meaningful way, just because the friction that the friction that the lack of that is causing, it's bad for anybody, but for especially someone like, like a patient with cystic fibrosis, patient with some other rare disease, um, their, their burden is hard enough without having to throw all these bureaucratic things at them, right? And so, um, you know, I think it's gonna, it's, you know, I think we'll, we'll start to see the emergence of PHRs that patients actually want to use. And that's, it's, it's almost like a self, it's a, it's a feedback loop, right? Like the more patients want to use it, the more useful it becomes and so on and so forth. So I do think that that's a massive opportunity that hasn't really been adopted at scale in this as, as a patient support service that really will, um, you know, it's a way to, it's a way to, it's, a, it's really a way to ride that way of VHR interoperability without having to make the, you know, epics and centers and whatever's of the world be friends with each other. And we need to work through the regulations of data yep. going from one place to another, which yep. is an easy statement to say, but would not necessarily, when you look at HIPAA regs and all the other aspects of, of covered entities to ensure yep. patient safety, data safety, which is a piece yep. there. Yep. As we look 
Uh, I want to go back to Isha for this last uh, question before we get to the lightning round and truly appreciate the, the depth of the conversation so far and all the questions that have come in. But as we look at digital adoption, why has digital adoption in specialty pharmacy lagged behind the society as, as a whole? We've, we're talking about different technologies here, but why has the digital adoption in specialty lagged behind? And your thoughts. And we'll start with Isha and then go to Maya and then Sheila. So, so there are a few a few levels here. Now, I want, I'm not going to go into a whole you know healthcare uh, macro analysis of why healthcare is lagging behind. So let's focus on why specialty health is lagging behind you know uh, um, other um, behind general healthcare and 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 the industry. So most of the systems that we have in place, digital systems, were actually designed for retail goods. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and retail drugs, you know, when prior off started coming out, I mean, this, the, we are now almost at 50% of all drug spending, especially. So in a way we are, the industry kind of, the drug manufacturers try to adapt their patient support system, the digital tools to, uh, to, um, to try to adapt their digital tools to much more complex, uh, um, you know, much more complex um, value chain because specialty is so much more complicated than retail. So many more stakeholders. And the traditional specialty pharmacy are not tech savvy. That's not what they do for a living. Or the patient hubs, they're not tech shops in their, you know, in their background. And you see some agencies that really thrived in building apps for retail drugs. But now when you come into specialty, it's a, it's a much bigger and more complicated ecosystem. So if five years ago, you saw drug manufacturers coming out with, with mobile apps, I'm kind of speaking about mobile because it's kind of obvious that everything has to be on mobile. That's also a trend of the past five, 10 years. Everything, the patient portal is dead. It's just my phone. Then, then five years ago, drug manufacturers, you would see come, you know, initiatives like uh, AZ Helps by AstraZeneca trying to put out there an app that would handle all the copay programs. But guess what? You need expertise in order to build such experiences. So then, so I think then drug manufacturers realize, okay, we can't, we can't pretend that we can build these things. The only, you know, we saw some attempts with Yumira Complete, which is an app that Abby put out there. That is actually a pretty impressive effort that only Yumira can fund probably. I don't want to ask how much that cost them, but you know, only Yumira can go and put you know a really big infrastructure that would have all the pieces here. Novartis put Cosentix equivalent out there, uh, but these are really you know if you're the biopharma, you're launching a drug, you can't build a platform that will handle hub, SP, prior off, you know, verification. So you end up with all these with you know with partnerships and and again the data fees. So I think. It's, we are now starting, as of, I would say, the past year or two, drug manufacturers realize that there's, that mobile is here and technology is here, and that's not in their wheelhouse, and they need help. They all, the next step is that drug manufacturers are realizing that first you got to plan for digital, and then you start overlaying hub services, you know, SP contracts, shipping, because you need that 
digital backbone. Otherwise, you're going to end up with the data feed spaghetti. Uh, Christine? Yeah, you're up. Thank you. Oh, no, I was, I think, you know, I'll add a little bit of a counterpoint to what, what, uh, what Ishai mentioned, which is I think the problem is that pharma has been throwing too many apps at patients. Most of them are atrociously bad. Pharma equates app to experience, right? Um, you know, speaking personally, I use four apps to take up like 95% of my time. Um, I need a really good reason for a, a new app or whatever it is to, to break into that mindshare. And that's something that's just completely, completely escaped pharma's, pharma's um, I guess, their viewpoint, right? They equate app to experience. They throw apps at patients with the expectation that it'll make them look cool. And then ultimately, nobody ends up using it. Um, and it ends up being a wasted, wasted expertise. So that's number one. I agree with the Ishai's point. They should not be building these on their own. But it's really, I mean, you know, controversial thing, I think. I would, I would, I would venture a guess that a vast minority of pharma companies have actually done any real ethnography and really followed a patient in their home, understood what that experience is. The idea is not to throw an app or some kind of technology tool at a patient, right? The idea is it's really about looking at experience and what can, like, why should a patient use your digital product, right? Why, why would they care? Um, why would they care that you hired, you know, X number of developers or partnered with X company and put this? They really don't. Specialty patients have enough of a burden without having to deal with some crappy technology tool that's ultimately useless to them, right? And I think it's it's that hubris, honestly, that the specialty industry has had as a whole, which I think has been what it's really been its its own worst enemy in terms of getting these sort of modernized tools. It's really been throwing throwing tools with the expectation that patients will use them without really diving into what patients actually want to use. Um, so I think it's really just being a little bit humble and understanding what patients actually want and also understanding that not everything needs a digital tool, right? I mean, there are some very low tech, low tech approaches to engage patients that work phenomenally well, picking up the phone, right? Setting up like a, having like a really well-trained call center. It's actually shocking how good those are at engaging patients. And I will say those approaches are arguably just as good as any mobile app, probably even better in terms of patient engagement rates. So I, I just think it's, you know, people are thinking digital first, experience second. I think they need to turn the other way around and think through what patients actually want. And looking potentially at even as you talked earlier about that patient centric model and understanding yep. what all the aspects of the patient and treatment right. journey that even among patients, there's segmentation of what their needs yep. are. And or then caregivers, the right? I mean, not enough people, not enough people focus on caregivers, right? Especially for rare disease patients. I mean, that's really who you want to, the, the, the patient experience is really the caregiver experience. And so these like basic, there's these like basic concepts that a lot of, a lot of the industry just doesn't seem to either does seem to grasp or doesn't seem to care about. Agreed. I'm going to go to the lightning round and I hope that this will be a lot of fun. And we'll start with, uh, with any of you, I'm going to put out a question to start with is we, if we could change and give you a magic wand to change one thing to improve patient continuity here in the specialty space, what would it be? For me, it would be that all, all of the folks or all of the stakeholders who are taking care of the patient or touching the patient could see what everybody else is doing, right? So that they would truly have a, a 360 degree view of that patient. I'm very focused right now on how do we get specialty pharmacy to just even talk to retail pharmacy, right? Because they have so much that they both know about the patient in silos. 
how much more impactful could those interactions be if they were able to share that information? So if I had a magic wand, I'd like everybody to be able to see what everybody else is doing with respect to touching that patient. Okay. Others? I've got sort of, go ahead. Oh, please go ahead. No, I was gonna say, I've got sort of two things. One is very, I'm very much on the practical side, and this will uh, probably make Sheila smile. Uh, the ability for pharmacies to be able to get the authorizations they need from patients without having to use the phone uh, so that they can ship the medications because you think about all of the missed medications that happen because they just don't make that that analog connection. Uh, and then I think as a more aspirational um, being able to assign let's call it a digital health sort of an assistant for every patient that's mm -hmm. full and independent from the EHR and insurance plan but you know, acts as a concierge for the patient to get appointment scheduling, clinical support, and connect the patients to whatever relevant program. So the, the, the landscape is so complicated and there's so many bad avenues that a patient can go down from a research perspective that having a smart assistant to kind of help them navigate the world of, of mm -hmm. care would be really, really impactful. Um, I think it's every, so I'd like to add two, I, again, two things. I think number one is every stakeholder in the value chain understands the entire patient journey, like as, as from the point of view of the patient, not just their, not just, you know, the specific part of the value chain we may be responsible for. Cause I think ultimately that just makes for, I think everyone being, I think that just helps us understand inefficiencies in the system a lot, a lot, a lot better. I think the second one is really more about, um, you know, focusing on, what patients want to Brian's point, right? Something that just helps them navigate the system as opposed to things that throw cool charts or analytics and stuff at them, which is where a vast majority of digital solutions for some reason tend to focus, right? I mean, they all focus on sort of the quantified self enthusiast. 99% of patients don't fit that phenotype. And so I, I, would be, I think we should think about just giving actionable recommendations without blasting people with data. So who owns the patient specialty patient experience? Who owns it? I say it's the patient. Yeah. Right? I think the patient's the ultimate driver. All the stakeholders have accountabilities, but I think it's, it's that patient who needs to drive the experience and ensure that we are meeting their expectations, right? We serve this master. So I say it's the patient. Slash caregiver. True. Yes, true. In certain situations, if not many, because of that, the journey together with chronic illnesses that, that they're placed there. Brian, thoughts? Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I agree that it should be the patient. I think that, you know, we think about all, we've talked about all of the different players that are involved in supporting the patient um, from you know, diagnosis to shipment to adherence. And it's really the, the specialty manufacturers who've got the best visibility into all of those pieces and components today. And so if they on the front end better understand and use the data well about what is going on with the patient clinically, non-clinically, and then work with the right partners to support the patient at the right spots along the way, they've got a huge role to play in terms of orchestrating how all of that aligns to make that patient experience what a patient ultimately wants. Because I think it was left up to the patient they're not going to necessarily know all of the ins and outs that are going to be necessary. I agree. The patient should be the center of it all. And if they could choose how that experience would, would interact, I think they, they, they should, but they're also not privy to kind of all the pieces that are really a part of that journey and that experience today. You should anything you'd add before the next question? Yeah, I think I, I, I tend to, uh, I, I think the, um, the owner, 
I think I agree with Sheila and Brian that, you know, the owner, uh, the patient is the owner in the sense that they make the choices on, on the experience, like Amea said. Which experience do I choose? Do I choose the analog one? Do I choose the phone one? Do I choose the digital one? Uh, it's the, the owner of the, of the experience for a drug, for a journey, is on the brand manager. And, and, and it, it's the brand manager and sometimes it's kind of, you know, it can be patient services or it can be the brand manager, but at the end of the day, every brand needs to come and say, what experience do I want my patient to have? Right. Uh, and, and you can't escape that. But through a knowledgeable base of what the patient and caregiver needs actually are and not just about the pill and, and what the brand I mean, wants, but overall total care. Even, I mean, even something I like from my, from my own personal perspective, I think to the, I think every brand manager should be required to shadow, shadow a patient that is part of the target population. Um, and just, just watch their workflow, watch their daily life, see the challenges they come up with, regardless of whether it has to do with their medication okay. or not. Now, you know, I'll leave it to the compliance folks to figure out how to do that. Um, but you know, I, you learn things that just focus you you're not going to learn in like a focus group or a survey or a KOL interview or stuff I mean it like we we really don't use ethnography nearly as much as we should um and I think I to me as a brand like I'm not a brand manager so but you know I would say every brand manager understanding the experience around that product I I, I feel like you have to put yourself in the patient's shoes couldn't agree with you more on many many levels little very provocative question and a little bit on the coming out from the left side is do you think that Amazon will enter the specialty pharma space in the next couple of years? What are people's thoughts on that? No, it's not profitable enough. No, okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, you know, I, I, I will say, I mean, I think at its core, Amazon is a logistics company. So I think this is a question a lot of people ask, right? Like how is big tech going to enter life sciences and, and healthcare? And I think the reality is they understand that, you know, the things that they're really good at, which are really providing the technology enabled services. So do I think Amazon will start to sell services into specialty pharma? Potentially, but I, you know, are they going to become a, a big specialty pharma player? I, I think there's a lot more appealing areas for them to attack that don't necessarily require the, the level of deep domain expertise. Um, but that's, that's my own personal view. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably- Jill? Fine. Go ahead. Isha, please. You agree? Not really. <laughs> but Amelia is used to that. I don't think we agree on much. <laughs> All right, Sheila or Brian, before I get to the last question. Yeah, I would. I think we're going to see Amazon uh, coming in through acquisition. So they're going to make PillPack work. Uh, PillPack is getting there. Um, they will make it work on the specialty side gradually, uh, and then they will make more acquisition. Uh, if I were uh, a small, a small, um, a small McKesson, I would be uh, flying to Seattle every now and then. Yeah. You think they're going to buy their way in? Okay, I'm going to switch to the last question uh, for us is, uh, we've all made the best of obviously this global pandemic we've been solving. And if you think a uh, classic making lemonade out of lemons, we're going to get them to a new normal. What will you personally miss 
about what's happened during this season that we've been in uh, sheltering in place and, and being a little bit more creative of how to solve our day-to-day -day life needs. What will you miss? I will miss not having to deal with Boston public transport. Okay, fair one. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I, I'm, I'm not gonna, well, what I'm gonna miss is just the spontaneous events I have with my children, right? Be able to throw the ball yep. and just get together with them. I think I'm gonna miss lunches I get to have every day with my wife. And uh, I, I know at some point I'm gonna miss working in shorts, so. <laughs> I think there are a few, uh, comments saying they're gonna miss networking in short too. Sheila, your thoughts before we close? What will we miss? I mean, I think, I mean, for me, it's been different, right? I, I've been in my home longer the past three months than I have in five years. So I'm not going to miss looking at all the things that need to be done and still aren't getting done. But I think I'm gonna miss, um, just everybody seems to have the spirit of cooperation and innovation, innovative thinking, flexibility. What are we gonna do that's in the best interest of the patient? Let's, let's not say that we've done it this way, we always have to do it this way. What can we do? What do we need to do differently? And let's just get it done. And so I hope that I don't have to miss that, right? I hope we can continue that when, when we all get back to doing what we used to do and, and still look for ways really to, to move away the bureaucracy and the barriers and just take care of patients the best that we can. Truly, patient connectivity, patient continuity has changed the face. And let's bring forward the thoughts and ideas shared today and what each of us are doing in the home front of our, our, with our partners and stakeholders. And I want to thank you all for joining the panel today. For those on, on listening in the webinar, we'll be following up with questions and blog posts coming out of all that was received today. And thank you also for the polling that has happened through it. So, uh, as we said, uh, best of luck to everyone and continued health and safety as we look to patient care and patient continuity at the core of what we do. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you.